Hello, this is Stephen Coates. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. As usual, we're going to be talking about what would come to be known as the counterculture. Teenage savages go wild in a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness. And I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. I 100% believe it. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. That two-beat pattern is the music brought to the United Smells States like teen spirit. That is the subject of this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture. But before we dive into that feverish, febrile, pheromone-filled phase of self-consciousness, sex, drugs and rock and roll, let me invite you to come and party with us. BureauofLostCulture.com Get our newsletter about upcoming shows, all sorts of other countercultural stuff, and you can support our wild endeavours. We appreciate this month Angie, Jimbo, Rox and Adrian for their support. Thank you so much. I also wanted to flag a couple of things. I have a book coming out in November with Strange Attractive Press in the UK and MIT in the US. It's called Bone Music. I'll probably talked about it before several times. It's all about the culture of forbidden underground music cut onto X-ray in the Soviet Union during the Cold War era. X-rayaudio.com We've also got our annual Festival of Mortality and the City, London Month of the Dead, 56 events during October. Some in the city, some online. All sorts of mortal malarkey. LondonMonthOfTheDead.com Now, I recently read a book called Stranger Than We Think, Making Sense of the 20th Century. It's a terrific read. It did actually help me make some sense of the 20th century. And my guest today is its author, John Higgs. He's also the author of various books on counterculture, including Timothy Leary, one on the KLF, and William Blake, and most recently, James Bond and the Beatles. He came to the Bureau to talk about all things counterculture and the evolution of the teenager. Welcome, John. Hello, Stephen. Good to meet you. Good to meet you too. Well, listen, uh, welcome to the Bureau. And, you know, I've said it to you before, and I'm not just puffing smoke up you but um your book stranger than we can imagine making sense of the 20th century it did actually start to make sense of the 20th century for me <laughs> i think that's a compliment for an author yeah i mean I, I didn't call it making sense of the 20th century or your money back i wasn't that confident but you know <laughs> I, it works occasionally <laughs> well, how do you make sense of the 20th century um, you know, I've written a couple of books on a specific subject. Interpreting the 20th century, it's just like, <laughs> I don't even know how you begin to do that. You know? Well, you just begin, and it took five drafts. It wasn't until about, you know, towards the end of the third draft that I realised what my story was, what my sort of theme was. Uh, you know, the first few versions just didn't have it. It was just, here's some stuff, and here's some stuff, and here's some stuff. By the third draft... I said there was a moment when it all sort of fell into place. So I wrote the fourth draft to sort of sketch it out properly and sort of explain the, the whole sort of the arc of um, individualism and all that sort of stuff. Um, at which point you've got it, you've got your story. So then you do your fifth draft to make it like look effortless. Okay. So it's not like you sort of, you know, you sat sort of looking out at the English Channel in, down in Brighton thinking about the 20th century. And then well, there was a lot of that, but it wasn't like I, I got the answers from that. You only get the answers from doing it, you know, right. sitting down and writing. That There is, I admit, an act of faith in that. It is a bit of a sort of, you, you, you leap and you hope that you will come up with something at the end. But those are always the, the books that need writing, really. If you sort of know what it's going to be, it probably doesn't need writing. It's well, probably already been said. So did you have the idea to write this um 
a narrative of the 20th century first or did you start writing your ideas about this and then it's then it turned into the book that it is but was was your initial idea to set out to do something like this or did it did that evolve it came from i wrote a book about timothy leary Mm. um and when i was looking at that period of, of america at that time um i'd often be surprised by things like i was really surprised by how silicon valley grew out of that sort of psychedelic um you know, uh, main part of California, that psychedelic sort of uh, ground zero, uh, and how connected it was, and how it was the, you know, the students taking acid who were going, we should have computers of our own when they're, you know, their teachers like, oh, that's just stupid. No house could deal with the computer. That's insane. But it was the young um, heads who wanted it and who sort of made it happen. And that was unexpected to me. I, you know, you look at Silicon Valley, you, you, it's, corporates, it's finance, it's right. technology, it's you don't think it comes from, you know, the same sort of spark as that. So that's what made me think, oh, I'm sure if I looked again at the, the 20th century, you know, there's a more interesting story than the one we're being told, which was just like, you know, Hitler and, uh, you know, the, the, the usual sort of attempt at the 20th century. Didn't actually know all of what it was at that point. But it, you just, it was, you just know it's, it's a rich subject, you know, mm. and if a subject's rich, you know, you, you, sh- you should be able to do something with it. And we're going to talk, John, about chapter 11, because it kind of links it, it links it for me with, you know, the emergence of the teenager as a sort of new thing. You start off with what Bambalula, what Bamboo, the, the little Richard, and, and for you, that 1955 two-minute song, um, you describe it in there in terms of like youth culture teenage culture and even counterculture as year zero why well it was new it was so new just nobody had heard human expression like that before um you could you can see it in jojo rabbit there's a world war ii film but he starts it with the beatles um version i want to hold your hand but in german because they recorded it in german um and it's odd because it's so ahistorical there's that, that sort of level of energy and, uh, you know, direct, heartfelt human connection um, with guitars and with noise and with energy and, and uh, that's so vivid. You just didn't get that in the 1940s. It just wasn't there. It's, it's, it's wrong that, it, that it's there. It's a choice by the filmmaker to sort of to put it there. You, once you grow up in a world where there are people like Little Richard you can never really think what it would be like to live in a world where nobody had ever experienced anything like it. You know, what's, what's normal to us now was just unthinkable. I hadn't thought of it before, but he was transgressive, wasn't he? Oh, on every level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was, um, he was black, he was gay. He was, uh, I, I suppose you would now call him trans. I don't think, you know, you don't want to project these things backwards in time too much, but that's probably a good um, example. He was everything that the establishment feared, Um, but it was wonderful, right? It was so attractive. It was so appealing. Um, It was spellbounding, which is just dangerous (laughs) for the establishment. Here's something that's not us, right? But it's better. You know, it was that. I wanted to read you something. As I was saying a little bit earlier, you know, my research into what was going on in the Soviet Union um, in the sort of 50s and 60s. And one of the people that I interviewed a few years back, Kolya Vasin, known in um, Russia to until his death a couple of years ago um, as the Beatles guy. That became apparent a bit later. But um, I was interviewing him about the phenomena of, you know, music which was cut onto x-ray film, you know, forbidden music in the Soviet Union. And I was asking him about the first time he saw an x-ray record. Uh, He first saw an x-ray record in 1957 when a friend came to his house after school and showed him a disc saying, look, Collier, this is American rock and roll. He took the soft, flexible record in his hand, looked at it through the light and saw the image of Bones. Immediately he was fascinated. And then when he put the record on the gramophone and it started spinning, he heard wild singing. He was delighted by this ecstatic, screaming voice and fell back stupefied. Who's this? His friend said it was Little Richard and the song was Tutti Frutti. Collier immediately became a convert at the Church of Rock and Roll. And subsequently to that, that's, you know, he then goes in search of 
these records himself, and he and he goes into town on the subway, and he and he, he sees this dealer guy, you know, standing under a under a colonnade, and he says, "I still remember that he came out from behind a column and said, come with me,' and we followed him to a dark, badly lit corner. Then he took out an entire roll of Bones records and started offering them to us, saying, "This is Bill Haley. This is Little Richard. That Elvis Presley. What do you want?" I said, "Tutti frutti. Give me tutti frutti." <laughs> The reason I mentioned that was this, it's only a couple of years later, and it had somehow got into the Soviet Union, a completely different culture, and yet it had the same incandescent, incendiary effect on young people there. So why? Why was this something which was, you know, pan-iron curtain? You know, what was going on with young people? Well, it's, it's fascinating if you look back at... Uh books or films or stories from you know the 1940s even the 1950s you know there's children right there's like boys and they wear short trousers and then they leave school and they immediately dress as their dad and they go to work and they're expected to have children and a family uh straight away and like if a woman wasn't you know married by the age of 23 it would be like a bit shocking people would be like talking about it it was it was um it was just a sudden abrupt shift from childhood to adulthood. But this adolescence started to appear, this sort of gap in between, and it started to sort of expand. And if you if you look biologically, um, species that have long childhoods are more intelligent. Chimps or, or whatever, the, the, a longer period of childhood uh, leads to, uh, and it, it's obvious really, the longer you're sort of, you're not responsible and you can sort of think about things and work out the world and, uh, and and so forth, the more uh, clued up you're going to be when you have to take that responsibility. And as the world's got more and more complicated and as our media sort of sped up and as people suddenly had, um, well, they had radio, but now they would have TV and then they'd have, you know, v- videos and then they'd get the internet and then they'd get smartphones and stuff like that. The amount of information that's been flooding us has just, it just increased exponentially. Uh, what, you know, a 14-year-old knows about the world now, blow the mind of, you know, a 50-year-old in the year 1912. It would, it would be incredible. It absolutely should. So it sort of makes sense that our childhoods had this sort of artificial extending sort of period. Uh, but what's interesting culturally is this is also the period where they look at the world and try and work out who they are and how they fit in it. Childhood's a bit more straightforward. You play, you know, you're in a small world play where you play with toys, toy soldiers or toy cars or, or whatever, and you imagine the world and you're trying to understand it. But you're not really much of an active agent in it. When you, when you get older and you start, to, you start to try and work out who you need to be in this sort of thing, that's the really interesting uh, part of, of, of adolescence because they look at the world as it is now and adapt to it. And the generation older is horrified. You know, they go, that's not how we were. That's just, my God, this is awful. What, look at that. You know, children these days, it's just absolutely awful. But it's, it's a, you know, an absolute, it's not like a generation grow up and all, all of a sudden they're just idiots unlike everyone else, you know. Every generation adapts to the world it finds itself in and they will see it fresh uh, with fresh eyes uh, and not sort of rely on perceived wisdom about how things are. So they get quite a really sort of accurate perception of, of the world and create what they think is needed in the response. So going back to the 40s then, of course, Second World War changes everything. And I particularly, I guess, in well this part of the world, but also in America too, doesn't it? So Bush is in this new age of materialism sort of security you know there's not there's plenty of stuff to eat and there's jobs and there's certainly in america anyway there's jobs uh, yeah and there's um as you said nobody's firing at you not until you get to this vietnam war but um it's a new age um you know you talk about alistair crowley's vision of it the patriarchal age is ending and the age of the crowned and conquering child is here yes absolutely yeah. it's something historically new then i mean you you mentioned that about the way men looked pictures of my great grandfather and my grandfather it's they're kind of indistinguishable you know you sort of grew a moustache I think when you were sort of 15 or 16 and started wearing a jacket and a tie well you wanted to be seen as a man you know you didn't you didn't uh, 
you didn't want to be seen as a child anymore. You know, that was, that was the sort of thing. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It was America was the hotbed of all this. And America, you know, obviously didn't get blown to pieces in the, the Second World War and had this huge economic boom after it spurred on by all the technology that was developed. And so, you know, the rock and roll appearing in this generation that suddenly had money in there and they had, because they had money, they had cars because they had cars, they had independence. And because they had independence, they could, you know, have sex and go off and have parties and everything, everything that we would all want, you know, at that period before we had responsibility to be unleashed and to have that sort of freedom away from the eyes, you know, of the bosses to come or the teachers of the past or the, you know, the present parents where you can, you're just yourself. You can just sort of be yourself. It's hardly surprising that the values that they had developed in that context were not the uh, values that the people before the The invention of the seven-inch record, 1949. Yeah, so democratic, so everyone could get afford. And you could probably take them to your bedroom. You know, for the first time, maybe you'd have a dance set record player. You'd have something in your room to listen to, to music. There'd be a radiogram in the living room beforehand, you know, but uh, to have... Uh, that private space and to hear, you know, those boys sort of saying they want to hold your hand or asking, please, please me or, or, or something like that uh, in your own room was very, very intimate. And it was, it was uh, such a powerful thing that, you know, obviously all the, well, the Beatlemania erupted and the, and the, and the screaming began, but it, you know, the, the technology had just arrived at just the right point to sort of, to, um, uh, to make less of a gap between the band and the audience. You know, it was a personal thing. You, when you buy a seven inch record, you sort of, that music was you now, you know, your, your, your record collection was an important part of who you are. It's why people were so furious when you too sort of forced that album onto people's iPod. You know, that was a sacred space, your record collection. You know, it was so wrong when they, they sort of did that. Well, you talk about the fact that very quickly, um, teenagers sort of identified as this group that you can sell things to as well <laughs> the advertisers are all over them right and um and they've got particularly in america you say they've got disposable income and so they can and more freedom i suppose and and for the for the older generation that was quite a shock wasn't it because they'd grown up in maybe in the 30s of sent you know with deprivation and then 40s with the conflict and then there's their kids who've got everything sort of just, you know, spending it on booze, drugs, records, electric guitars. My father seems to have already settled down, settled into his way, settled, knows what's right, knows what's wrong. And every time I want to say something to him, I don't want to be settled down. Even no matter what I say, this is not a final decision. I want to just sort of try things out. And trying things out on parents never seem to work. You can't try things out. So the best thing I can do with my father is tell jokes. I mean, that's sort of, you know, uh, that's something, because that's sort of, you know, that's all right, that's safe. Uh, it doesn't get you into problems. I had a strong feeling that these children were rebels without a cause. They had everything. They could have had everything. And I found it very hard to see what, they were rebelling against and I couldn't see what they had that was going to replace it or that was better it could possibly be better being happy no matter how if you're happy then you're a success I mean if you're a bum and you're happy being a bum you should stay a bum this ongoing shift from people um, understanding themselves as individuals, which is the, the, the main theme of that book, Strange Than We Can Imagine, the, the start of the um, century, it, we, it was a hierarchical world. People were sort of judged on where they were in the hierarchy. They were not whether they were a good person or a clever person or a funny person. It mattered whether they were a duke or a stable boy or a doctor or, or whatever. Um, the shift to um, seeing people as individuals which had been coming from the Enlightenment, but really cracked open and really became mainstream after the Second World War. That individualism really kick-started the, uh, the uproar of, of youth culture that we still you know, look back and admire on today, to the extent that we still talk of the counterculture, right? Even though it's a counterculture, you know, there's, all, there's always countercultures throughout history. There's tons of different countercultures at any, any one particular time. Uh, but to think of yours is the only one, right? This, this is the only one. Uh, that, that phrasing is the counterculture is very um, telling. And it's, it tells, it says a lot about it. And, you know, 
I love that counterculture, and there's I'm grateful for so much of what was in it. But you you can see the 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 um, the self first framing of it in a different light these days. I think it's come up on this show, you know, before. There's always been countercultures. I mean, you talk about the Sufis, don't you? You talk about sort of the followers of Socrates and. You know, even in London, there was these kind of, uh, you know, street gangs and stuff like that. There was always stuff going on, wasn't it? Which is countercultural. I mean, how do you define counterculture and w- what is it that makes it? Well, it's obviously in opposition to the prevailing culture. That kind of implies there's one single prevailing culture, which isn't really always the case. But li- leaving that aside, it's almost like an R&D department to try and find a better way than the existing culture. It's not in, li- it's not in sync with its values or its... Um, it's reward structures or, or anything like that. It's just trying to find a better way. Trump voters in America would see themselves as a counterculture. They would say that the prevailing culture was like Ivy League, university educated, uh, in a city, uh, globalist, uh, out of touch, arrogant, you know, all those sort of things. Elitist, mainstream. Oh, yeah, exactly. All that sort of stuff. And they were a counterculture to it, right? But just because they're counterculture doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to produce something valuable or find a better way, you know, you know, which is how we tend to sort of judge these sort of things. If, if a counterculture produces, like an R&D department comes up with, in, with something new and brilliant and that, that, that sort of improves the world, then that's a good counterculture. But not all countercultures do that. You know? In terms of like the teenagers that evolved into what they described themselves as the counterculture, what was the connection then? So for the Beats in America... They were a bit old. People like Burroughs was a bit old, wasn't he? And Gimme Ginsburg, a little bit older. But I guess they were coming out of that post-war youth uprising thing as well, were they? Yes, they were. As you say, they were a bit older. They, but they were the um, really the, the seeds. They were really where it comes from. It's like before the Impressionists, you'd get like Manet, um, uh, who weren't quite Impressionists, but really that's where it all sort of comes from. The, the, uh, the ideas that the beats were... Uh, pursuing and pressuring were the ideas that uh, the, in quotes, counterculture were mad for, was the sense of individual liberation, all the music of freaking out, all that sort of stuff. Those were where the seeds sort of came from. Um, These strange poets and pillheads from the the wartime period. So the teenager sort of emerges, rock and roll emerges in the 50s. Isn't just America, it's here to... You know, and as I found out, um, it was in the Soviet Union, not just people like Kolyavasin, um, in the Soviet Union, there was a youth culture. The only youth culture, Artemy Troitsky calls it, which is the Stelyagi. Today he dances, tomorrow he will sell his homeland. This is a sidebar about the Soviet youth culture, teenagers called the Stelyagi. It's from my upcoming book, Bone Music. And what was a Stelyagi? Often interpreted as dude or hipster, Stilyagi translates as stylist or style hunter, though follower of fashion perhaps better conveys its meaning. The term was intended to be derogatory, just as beatnik, hippie, punk and goth were in the West. But it was adopted, just as they were, as a badge of honour by those it lampooned. They were anti-socially individualistic, unpatriotically aped Western fashions, culturally ignorant and were shallow. But veteran Russian cultural commentator Artemy Trotsky says the Stilyagi were important because they publicly risked being different at a time when difference could be dangerous. Certainly, they originally took their inspiration from the US music and style scenes which were disseminated during and after World War II. But as clothes couldn't be imported from the West, the Stilyagi started making them themselves. The guys initially wearing super wide trousers and getting their mothers and sisters to knit sweaters with reindeer designs or cutting wildly patterned neckties from curtains. The style evolved until it settled around a version of the British Teddy Boy or Greece-era US 1950s rock and roll look. Now the boys favoured trousers with narrow legs, thick crepe-soled shoes, loud patterned shirts and garish jackets. The girls wore heavy makeup, heels, pantsuits or brightly coloured short skirts. They sported elaborate hairstyles with quiffs and perms. It was a cartoonish version of the original, but it certainly stood out in the USSR, as it was intended to, when they paraded up and down a big city avenue, chewing gum made of paraffin wax, talking loudly in their own lingo, combining Russian, criminal slang, vulgarity and hip US talk. 
They called Nevsky Prospect Broadway, apartments suitable for private parties, huts, and they called each other American names like Bob, Bud, Eddie, Polly and Betsy. Boogie Woogie, Swing and Jazz were their music of choice until rock and roll arrived. Some still argue with the children of higher party ranks, the privileged golden youth jet set, who were the main source of information about the West because they could travel abroad or get hold of Western magazines and records. Others were from families of the intelligentsia, the children of doctors, engineers and teachers. And they were also ordinary working class kids. As has often been the case, pop culture, music and style acted as a class leveller in ways that ideology could not. The Stulyagi were the Soviet example of a family of youth subcultures sprouting through the Eastern Bloc. In Hungary, with a Jampacek, a word used derisively from the late 20s, to variously describe disaffected youth gang members, spivs, slackers, teenage dandies, hooligans, beats or hipsters. Like the Stulyagi, the Jampacek of the 50s and 60s sported flashy US-influenced clothes and hairstyles, parted, disdained the value of their parents, and generally annoyed the establishment. In Poland, there were the Bikinazzi, and in Czechoslovakia, the Potapka, in Romania, the Malangabisti. Like their Western counterparts in the earlier French Zazus, or the German Swing and Juden, the Swing Kids, they all used music and clothes to distinguish themselves from the older generation and their more conventional peers. Antagonism to these Cold War kids was partly based on their espousal of foreign values, but it was part of a general worldwide social anxiety shared in the West about youth culture. On one hand, they were seen as a new and attractive group of potential customers, and on the other, anti-social tearaways, hooligans, disrespectful of their elders, ungrateful, spoilt, entitled, lazy, immoral, and a sign of the decay of society. That shock was largely expressed through the media, with hysterical features and alarmist op-eds often focused on the harmful effects of rock and roll. Rock and roll in the 1950s, which would fire you up, the notion that you then go out and slash the seats in the cinema was a very sort of rock and roll sort of thing, teddy boys being violent. It was sort of a, it would create this energy that you just spurt outwards. It, it was an outward expression of uh, of energy that you couldn't quite funnel in a productive or in any way. So, so rock and roll people would slash the seats, but in Beatles concerts, people used to wet the seats. Or the, <laughs> the female, young teenage audience, they were, it was a, it was a, a thing of surrender. Absolutely. So I talked earlier about Kolya Vasin, you know, the kid who came across Little Richard in Leningrad. Uh, but he went on to become a, a huge Beatles fan, the Beatles guy, as he became known, in fact, later on. And I mentioned that he went out to get some more Bone records from a bootlegger or a dealer uh, and hoping to buy more Little Richard. But in fact, he was given a record which, when he got it home, played it on his mum's blue Jubilee gramophone player. It started to play and it turned out that it was actually um, the Can't Buy Me Love by the Beatles. Uh, of course, that was always one of the things with buying these records. You're never quite sure what somebody was going to give you. When he played it, he fell back again, you know, Tutti Frutti was one thing, but when he heard the Beatles, he was completely converted. This is what he said to me at the end. He said, they are the joy of my life. It's a prize that I thank God for every night, saying, thank you, Lord, that today I listen to such holy music. And it's been this way these past 50 years. When I heard them, I heard something so phenomenal that even the great little Richard, whom I had adored, faded for me. They enlightened me. Little Richard was happiness, but the Beatles were insanity, something else, the limit, something unexplainable. And I understood everything. And then I started building them a shrine. February 1964. We came here, we came here at six o'clock in the morning, five thirty to see them, and all they do is push your bottle and bottle away. And then they don't even let you see them. <laughs> It was blissful. Your ego was just gone and you just surrender and you just sort of give yourself over to something larger. This was a real sort of big, big sort of shift. And this was, uh, this is kind of unstoppable. You know, that once, once you've gone from the shift between wanting to slash the seats to sort of to wet the seats, you know, <laughs> this is powerful. This is a powerful impact it is having on people. 
I love that. It's amazing. Before we move on to the 60s, I wanted just to read you something. But listen to this. There are rumblings, wails and howls like the smarting of a metal pig, the shriek of a donkey or the amorous croaking of a monstrous frog. Bestial cries are heard, neighing horses, wild screaming, hissing, rattling, wailing, moaning, cackling. The insulting chaos of insanity pulses to a throbbing rhythm. Listening to this screaming music for a few minutes, one involuntarily imagines an orchestra of sexual maniacs led by a man stallion beating time with an enormous phallus. It goes on, that's Maxim Gorky <laughs> talking about talking about jazz. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But the extraordinary thing about it, two things about it, is is that it was the same sort of thing that just people in America were saying about Elvis, you know, on on the other side of the Iron Curtain, exactly the same thing. But also, if you heard that as a young person, isn't your response going to be, I want some of that? Yeah, yeah. Because if you'd grown up in a society that said all that was bad, you're just assuming that people that you're writing to see the world in the same way you do. But of course, they're just coming up and they're seeing the world and they're trying to make sense of it. Um, and they ain't going to see the world in the same way you do. And so things that can seem um, awful to an, o- an older demographic can be so appealing and so right. Because rock and roll is cool, you know? Yeah, I see. Well, now, uh, what do you think? Well, I think that rock and roll is real uh, fancy rock and roll, and I like it. like it? What do you think? I think that man must have been nowhere because rock and roll is cool, daddy, and you know it. <laughs> rock and roll is the most, and if they stop that, they ain't going to have no more music. That music sends me, man. It sends me. You guys dig that music all the way. <laughs> oh, man, that, that's crazy music, that music there, rock and roll. He should never, he should have let that go on. That was crazy music, man. That sends me, exactly. <laughs> What do you think about them banning rock and roll in Jersey City? I think it's just great. I don't know why the heck they, uh, the government told them to stop because I think it's just great. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think all teenagers like rock and roll. It's great for everybody. Yeah. What does it do for you? Yeah. It makes you feel good inside. Very much. Well, me, it makes me happy. I don't know, it puts me in a good mood. Rock and roll was really dismissed in very racist terms. It was like the the uh, it was the music of the jungle. It was like savages having sex and all this sort of stuff. Man, that sounds great <laughs> to the younger generation. You know, that's really not the insult that they thought it was. <laughs> that's it. So we moved into the 60s and 70s, and you make this distinction. It's like the Stones and the Beatles represented two different streams of consciousness in a way. So could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the Beatles and LSD, which is, you know, what we think of as the 60s, was kind of going against the grain of the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, which was all about this growing sense of individualism. There was a sense that, you know, people like Mick Jagger or punks in the 70s, or Thatcherites in the 80s, or, you know, Brit Poppers in the 90s, were all on the same path, which was I want, you know, and I, I want to do this. And it sort of built and built until, until it became this weird sort of edgelord sort of um, uh, culture that the teenagers now mock mercil- mercilessly. But all that, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. You can't always get what you want. They're all sort of focused on you, and you, you're understanding the world through the notion of you and what you want. Um, very Thatcher, very Alistair Crowley. There's a, there's a link that runs all the way through uh, the 20th century. And in fact, uh, one, one thing I didn't realise I'd finished that book was there's, there's sections of Margaret Thatcher's speeches that are identical to the writings of Alistair Crowley. There's, there's, <laughs> both of them say, man has the right to work as he will, right? things like that. They're exactly the same. That was the sort of prevailing sort of growth of individualism in the, in the 20th century. And the Beatles weren't that. And acid wasn't that. And all you need is love wasn't that. That was, that was, a, that was a very, very different thing. And uh, I mean, the Stones fit in exactly with the century, I think, definitely. You do say that Mick Jagger was an admirer of Thatcher, which is kind of awful thought somehow, isn't it? But, um, you know, Keith... It sort of makes sense. It does make sense, yeah. Whereas, uh, and Keith Richards' sort of version of it was like, you know, massively hedonistic and and flaunting it. You talk, you, 
<laughs> you talk about the fact that he completely unnecessarily, sort of, when they were in Arkansas, you know, took off in this yellow uh, soft top sports car packed with drugs in a kind of very, you know, difficult part of America to do that, you know, for no reason whatsoever, it would seem apart from the sheer hell of it, right? Keith Richards, where he says, we needed to do what we wanted to do. Yeah. That sums it up perfectly, I think. So there's always these two things going on. There's the, on one hand, there's the raw energy of me, 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 you know, which is, we've all been through as a teenager, sort of focused on, you know, on yourself and possibly your peers to the exclusion of everything else. And then the other stream of stuff is, which gets represented by the Beatles and amplified by LSD, but it's also there in the beats, is this other regarding sort of wider consciousness thing too, which of course in the late, late part of the 60s starts to influence everything, not just music, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, modern 21st century teenagers are very different, I think. I don't, I don't think they would... Um, they're swept along by the same uh, interests that Keith Richards or the Rolling Stones are sort of being driven to. But at that point in history, yeah, that does seem a, a fair description of it. And and um, the clash between I want and rendering of the ego to have a transcendent experience that makes life this worthwhile. Is, this country, at this time, needs something that it hasn't got. Yes. What does it need? Love. The whole people have to know each other, you know? What about people older than, say, 30? Older people, do you think they can indulge in this too? Yes, they should. Do they? I don't know if they do, but they should. What do you think older people think of all this? Most of them think it's ridiculous. Why do you think they think it's ridiculous? Because I don't think it can be done. <laughs> Are you a part of the love generation? Yes. Do you love me? Yes, I love everybody. Is it possible to love everybody? Yes. How come? How come people haven't loved everybody for 2,000 years? Because they've been mixed up. To take drugs? Yes. You would? Yeah. Why? I'm, I'm experimental. I'm experimental. That's quite a culture war. That's quite a sort of clash sort of going on at, at, at that. And you, know, you can see that running all the way through the sort of 60s. It sort of crashed a bit in the 70s, didn't it? When the, you know, you see the, the punks sort of turn their back on the sort of the hippies dreaminess and stuff like that becomes kind of risable or uh, and embarrassing and but yet it doesn't go away and i think one of the things which uh, has come up in the bureau of lost culture even last episode when i interviewed craig sams brought microbiotic eating to uh, the uk several things which actually had their origins in that late 60s love fest became part of everyday mainstream society now. Absolutely. And, and Craig Sams is a really important part. I was saying earlier about how the, the counterculture is kind of like an R&D department for the, the broader culture. It is trying things and coming up with things. And when it comes up with something that's a good idea, you know, then then we all benefit. And now, uh, you know, the huge rise in, in veganism, um, for climate reasons, particularly among, among the young generation, it was it was it was so funny seeing you know the uh, the older reactionary journalists um, freaking out about the idea of like a, a, a vegan sausage roll at Greg's. <laughs> you know the the um, Piers Morgans of the world. They were just filled with horror with this sort of idea. And to anyone younger, the notion that that could fill anyone with horror is just so strange. And that's a real, one of those real sort of moments where you go, oh, we have come a long way, haven't we? Because that, that older reactionary sort of attitude is now so absurd. It looks so sort of stupid. And yet it's kind of perennial too, though, isn't it? And it's like, maybe it should be in the sense that like the, the eternal teenager, teenagers turn into 20-year-olds, turn into 30-year-olds and they have kids and they settle down. Not, well, not always, of course, but I mean, you know, that's a, that's part happening. And then they get old and of course they start to then condemn their own teenagers, don't they? They start to find their own teenagers <laughs> shocking and maybe they've got some nostalgia for their own youth, shocked by their, by their teenagers' youth as their parents were too, right? They form their identity at a particular point in time. And by doing so, they changed the culture and they changed the world. So when their children forms their identity at this later point, it's a very different world. So they become very sort of different people. And so the people who are formed at this earlier time always find it difficult. Always, they always can't quite under, understand. 
how flexible and how uh, good we are with change. It varies across society. There's what they call neophobic people and neophiliac people. Neophobic hate change and you know the notion that um, society is fragile and it can go horribly wrong and changing it too much can have terrible consequences. And so hence, you know, keep the status quo as much as you possibly can, because at least it's sort of works. It's flawed, but it sort of works. Uh, and the neophiliacs, are, are like, they love change. You know, let's do something new. Let's do something different. We'll find something, something better. Uh, and there's this sort of clash sort of between the two. What I was talking about earlier about how this adolescence sort of period opened up between childhood and uh, adulthood, where they, they were sort of forming themselves. It has, that period has sort of kept growing and, and, and kept growing and kept growing. And so to the millennials, um, the, the post-war generation look um, like they've never really quite grown up. The fact that they all, you know, become adults, but they still like Harry Potter and, you know, they all go and see Spider-Man films and all this sort of thing would have been deeply embarrassing to someone raised in the 1950s. It's the, the sense that if you can keep that playful, carefree period of not really being an adult going for as long as you can, then you can still adapt and change a bit more before you get fixed and you're sort of in your rut and that, that's you now. You're not going to have any sort of uh, major new revisions to your worldview because it's a fixed sort of thing and it's, and it's, the, the plasticity of the brain is sort of not quite what it was. And you've got something that works for you and you just want to keep it like that. But the world is going in a, in a sort of completely different way. But there is certainly, I don't know, I do have the sense that this sort of lengthening, extending period for even as much as you can mock, you know, the Harry Potter fans who are, you know, age 35. It's probably a good, because there's a level of sort of flexibility that we're keeping for longer and hence, we probably can understand a little bit more of what that generation is 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 sort of doing. I've got friends who sort of formed in the nineties, and then they drew a line, and anything after that, they're against it. They're they're at war <laughs> against. It. Ain't a useful way to be. It's reflected so much in our identity that we sort of feel a little bit offended if the world changes away from who who we are. Unless we were slightly rejected, we sort of we sort of identify with our worldview to a sort of. Uh, extent that can be uh, can be sort of difficult. I had never conceived it in those terms before. So, in a way, you're saying that after the Second World War, suddenly there's this kind of extension, extenuation of adolescence. First of all, it becomes teenage, and then as the decades uh, go on, is is that the the point at which the sort of teenage or the adolescent ends and become an adult gets further and further away from your birth and it's a sort of thought isn't it because you're absolutely right I mean if you go to a festival now it's you know parents possibly even grandparents are there with their grandkids watching the same bands you know I mean I mean possibly even taking the same drugs you know um, or wearing Converse trainers and I can see that in a way there is something amazing about that of course and also it's quite a thought that if it carries on getting uh, attenuated, that people will actually die before they get old, which was also, of course, always the <laughs> there was the dream. I mean, you're actually chronologically you're old, but in fact, you've not actually left adolescence by the time you're eighty. Um, it's a sort of that's something quite horrifying about it. But also, doesn't it, in some way, rob teenagers of their own period? They sort of hide their culture from us really in interesting ways. We don't think they have any, but my God, we, they, they have. And it's so uh, multi-layered and rich. And we just, there's too many references. We can't follow it. It's, it there is always something going on. It's, and it, oh, there's always something going on, of course. Yeah. Always, there's always an underground. There's always a counterculture going on. It's, but you yourself in the book, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, Alan Moore and Michael Moorcock all kind of gave it sort of 40 years. But for them, obviously, a certain generation sort of like expired or sort of faded out in the kind of late 80s and 90s, you know, because of Thatcher. Johnny Marr actually saw it that way too. He, he saw particularly Manchester in the north. He, he saw the, the impact of Thatcherism and how that sort of stomped on communities, but also on, on the idea of being in community and that it elevated the everyone for themselves ethos uh, into the ascendancy. Is there a sense that the, the classic counterculture that we talk about, that it did sort of run out of steam? The change you're talking about is really connected to the rise of the internet. And the rise of the internet is connected to the uh, bypassing of gatekeepers. So um, when we had gatekeepers to get you know music on a 
seven inch single or, or you know, a, a story on a book in a, or in a comic in a shop or something like that. You had to get through all these sort of gatekeepers. Really sort of, um, it was a really harsh filter. It really sort of kept things from happening because to a lot a large degree and, and the, the punks and the hippies before them were really good at sort of trying to get past that and have their own press and have their own sort of um shops and and one um result of that was that things really needed to sort of build up and get enough pressure before they could explode out in, into the world so when a new scene arrived bam it was fully formed and you know bam it was there and everything like that uh with the the, the need for that pressure gone things just sort of gently froth up and come through and new ideas sort of part there but they're not they're not a thing they're not a gang of uh, of ideas together it's not a bunch of people who all see the world very different and they create this entirely sort of new culture and bam now we're all different it was the effect of the internet right of course it was because it kind of it made the distribution of trends so much quicker. There's barely time to get one going sort of thing before it's already sort of spread. And Jonathan Green, you know, who, you know, is a lexicographer of slang, talking to him about where all the 60s words, you know, uh, hip, chick, dope, bang, all this sort of stuff came from. And he was sort of saying, well, they came from black America in the 20s, you know, and it took sort of 40 years before they sort of like got to swing in 60s London. Because he charts this stuff. He says, now it takes about 40 days for a word that, emerges in black america to make it onto the streets of london <laughs> so there has been sort of a weird sort of phase shift as uh, if you will but i mean there's still it doesn't mean there's not no imagination anymore it doesn't mean there's nothing sort of going on it, it doesn't mean that things were better then you know it's just different now do we need a new technology or a new drug i mean charting that movement from you know rock and roll through skiffle and beats you know and the and and jazz and psychedelic movement into big rock and punk and new wave and you know and, and rave and hip-hop and and yeah and the the, the from the electric guitar through to the synthesizers the sampler and then the computer and then the drugs have changed haven't they from all the way through from you know weed and acid and cocaine and um, MDMA and you know it's evolved and those things have gone in parallel haven't they the sort of technology of music the the new drug there's a new state of consciousness a new experience of being a new way of feeling people will try and express that in their art and so when there's a new drug or, or something like that You've got a whole new state of consciousness that you can then try to express and you try and use what tools are available to get that that uh, across so that they're very very linked technology and um, states of mind it's always uh, an attempt to express being human what the experience of being you you know is like and we will always experience you know being our, ourselves and it has because that's such a shifting and strange thing if you were to take, um, I don't know, a Stormzy album and go back in time and play it to someone in, you know, 1914, they would just go, I just cannot <laughs> comprehend uh, why why humans would make noises like this. You know, I just, I cannot relate to it in any way, shape or form. And that's a sign of just how far we've changed and how far we've come. The, the Even though, like, you know, we're going through a sort of renaissance, thankfully, you know, in terms of reassessment of psychedelics, you know, and that hopefully it will have an impact on culture too. But uh, is it maybe then that those kind of drugs and that kind of technology, in some ways, the internet and the social media, which stimulates dopamine and serotonin, is, that, is, is it the blend of that that has brought about this kind of new consciousness, that kind of technolo technology and... No, normally the shift between generations is, is kind of gradual like there's the baby boomers and then i'm generation x and then there's the millennials and we're different but it just all sort of flows into each other but occasionally there's a real break uh just to the point that the generation before can't understand the next generation and it happened with the the silent generation to the baby boomers something is happening here and you don't know what it is do you mr jones it was sort of boasting about how the older people didn't get it we'd all changed our values had changed uh they just didn't get it the rise of generation z compared to millennials i think is a similar real shift a real sort of change uh, and it is the result of growing up not passively watching things on a TV, 
but uh, interacting and uh, being part of, of a network rather than when you do sort of grow up watching TV, you're kind of separate from it. There's this sense of being an individual uh, and there's a, there's a thing out there and it you know it may not have your best interest at heart, but you can't really do anything about it. You can't really control it. It's just the sort of thing is very different to sort of growing up online uh, and not seeing yourself as separate. The, the sense that we're apart from everything, I think has passed for people growing up now in the 21st century. And it's really, a, really a major shift. Uh, and it's, it's why Generation Z can seem so strange to people like me who are sort of raised in the, in the, in the 20th century. It's been this massive, massive um, fundamental rewriting of how they understand their relationship with the universe. It's, it's kind of a big deal. In recent years, um, the conversations about gender and the whole thing about pronouns and people when people in their sort of 20s do it or even younger, I, I sort of get it, right? But when it's kind of older people, it's like, are you just trying to be young? Isn't this their thing? Let them have their thing. It's not, you don't have to fight it because the Piers Morgan thing, you know, and the anti-woke brigade and all that sort of stuff. It's just the same thing again, isn't it? The kind of older generation putting down the younger generation, just in the way that people parents in the 60s and 70s found their own kids gauche and you know the way they were dressing and speaking sort of shocking or disturbing and isn't it just the same thing and it does come from them seeing themselves as part of a network a right. part of a network of relationships rather than as an isolated uh, individual because once that happens uh, you get a level of responsibility for your actions that you didn't have before. You're sort of concerned about how you impact on other people. You're, you're thinking a lot more about that. You're, you're, how are your actions impacting on other people in a way that you know, Keith Richards would never do? You know? uh, and so being sort of respectful and understanding of things. And it, it's part of the big rise in anxiety because it's difficult uh, and it's stressful and it takes a lot of mental uh, uh, shift. But grow up with friends who they have gender dysphoria and how they're treated and how society treats them um and their reaction is to support be there for them and uh, the generational shift in the understanding of of trans issues um is so striking it's so apparent you know for my i i used to love prince right when i was growing up i remember seeing him on the love sexy tour and i'd you know i'd listen to prince but i, I had no idea what it meant that he like had this female you know, Count uh, Alter Ego called Camille, and he had his name was really a symbol that was both male and female, and all this. I just had no concept at the time. It you know it was baffling, wasn't it? And now, of course, it sort of makes sense. If I was your girlfriend, you know, listening to sort of song, songs like that, and I only get it now because you know I've got teenage kids, and they sort of explained it to me, and it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> now I get it, and. And because their explanation makes sense of things in the world, particularly my Prince records, you know, it's value. It's, you know, I get it. I'm on their side. I sort of, I sort of really understand it. Yeah. So we're running out of time, John, but I wanted to sort of just uh, wrap up with a couple of things from chapter 11 of the book. And first one, you end on this, and it's the sort of story of Kurt Cobain. And it's that counterpoint, I think, to how you began with Little Richard. I mean, very different kind of musicians, one's black, one's white, you know, and the music's completely different and stuff. But what's quite moving about that is that he represented something. And of course, you know, smells like teen spirit. We've been talking about teenagers, haven't we? All those values, the anti- mainstream the anti-consumerism in a way the beatles type stuff right which he stood for it couldn't stand up to the man there's a sense that that's what killed him isn't it? it's easy to see it in those terms certainly yeah i mean it, it does seem significant it's, it, it did at the time i mean i remember um when he died it wasn't you know front page news of the newspapers people didn't know kirk cobain you know, the older generation didn't know kirk cobain but i remember the impact it had on me and the people I knew, and it really was. Uh, it was the he, that sense of it, as your voice, when the voice of your generation gives, it's odd. There'd always been these artists who would have this 10-year period of just pure inspiration, pure genius, uh, where every album would just be unheralded and amazing and held in and amazing for about a 10-year period. The Beatles did it. Um, David Bowie did it in the 1970s. Uh, I would argue Prince did it. Um, and it, 
the 90s, it could easily have been Kurt Cobain. It was starting as if he was going to be the one. But that, um, that suicide, what you were saying earlier about how people identify the sort of mid-90s as the period when it all ended, it's symbolically. But I, I don't think we've got a good grasp on the 90s. I think there's a very sanitized sense of the 90s that sort of goes around, which is a bit sort of Tony Blair and... Uh, um, spy schools and, 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 and things like that. I, I think it was a lot more interesting. Just the final one, I suppose, really is to go back all the way to uh, Little Richard. And I just wanted to mention this thing which you plucked out of his biography, which seems significant, which is that he's two years after the he's released this in, <laughs> incendiary single, he's playing a concert in Australia and there's a fireball in the sky and this event is what makes him actually stop being a rock and roller for quite a while and become a preacher you know uh, rock and roll and religion really they are joined you know ecstasy is ecstasy you know whether it's you know spiritual ecstasy or you know um teenage exuberance they really are sort of bound together yeah quite quite smoothly from a sort of sexual ecstasy to a religious ecstasy the amazing thing about it as well of course is that you think that actually that fireball was Sputnik, the Soviet satellite which had been launched, which of course then kind of metaphorically at least tied this whole thing into the space age as well. There was something global, almost global about it. The whole world sort of changes and marches forward, different paces at different places and then there's different factors, but that is what is happening. That is the overall story behind all this. John, thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Great talking to you. Thanks to John. I will put a link to John's website with all his books in the show notes. The book that we were mainly talking about was Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century, but he's just got a new book out, Love and Let Die, Bond, The Beatles and the British Psyche perfect timing with all the changes that are going on in these islands i hope you enjoyed that and maybe it reminded you of your teenage years maybe you're still in your teenage years certainly reminded me of mine a very confusing time but also absolutely extraordinary i mean i spent uh, time desperate to get out of the place that i was born traveling around england with my friend glenn duncan exploring the psychedelic prehistoric landscape of albion something which I'm still kind of weirdly living out today. Come and join us. This show, I think, is about to leave its adolescence and enter its early 20s. Get in there. It'd be great to have you as part of our community, even just to get our newsletter and so we can communicate what is going on and what's coming up. You can also, of course, support our wild endeavours in any other way that you can, even just by spreading the word. Let's bring back counterculture into the mainstream. I thought we'd finish with something in the spirit of this episode. This is the band Lazarus and the Plane Crash with their track, Naked and Nasty. See you next time.